Welcome to Interviews for Resistance. We are now into the second year of the Trump administration, and the last year has been filled with ups and downs, important victories, successful holding campaigns, and painful defeats. We've learned a lot, but there's always more to learn and more to be done. In this now weekly series, we talk with organizers, agitators, and educators, not only about how to resist, but how to build a better world. I am Sarah Jaffe, your host. So I'm Alexis Goldstein. I am a Senior Policy Analyst at Americans for Financial Reform, which is a coalition of about 200 organizations um, that fights for a safer and fair economy. And my nighttime gig is I also co-host a podcast called Humorless Queers. And it is an excellent podcast that everyone should listen to. So um, <laughs> I wanted to start off, we're going to talk about some specific stuff that's happened recently, but I wanted to start off by asking you to give us a sort of overall picture of what the Trump administration, with the help of Congress and various other allies of theirs, um, has done around, well, basically returning to deregulation. I mean, it's basically uh, deja vu all over again, is I guess the short answer. It's like it's the 1990s, um, and it's full speed ahead on ripping up all of the rules that we put in place after the last financial crisis. Um so I guess there's sort of a few different things that are going on. So one thing that's happening is in, like, the consumer space. Right. So one of the best things I would say that came out of the last crisis was the creation of this Consumer Bureau that was right. the brainchild of Elizabeth Warren, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And it was, like, one of the few places that was, like, actually looking out for, like, the little guy. And if your bank ripped you off for, like, 15 bucks, you could complain and pretty quickly usually get a resolution. Um, cause they have this like complaint system and the consumer bureau would like reach out to the company on your behalf and it's like amazing. Um, but the other thing that they did is they went and sued companies and tried to get back money that financial companies had stolen from people. And, right. um, they got back billions of dollars to millions of Americans. So Trump installed this guy, Mick Mulvaney, who's like this Tea right. Party guy who was already at the Office of Management and Budget. So this is like his other job. <laughs> and he's right. like, he's basically like Scott Pruitt at the EPA. It's like a longtime foe of the Bureau, running the Bureau and dismantling it from within. So he's talked about, so that, that, that thing I just talked about, how you can complain, and there's like this database that you can look at. So if you have a company and you're like, wow, they're really giving me the runaround, you can look into the database and see if other people have had the same problem. Right. He wants to basically get rid of the ability to do that. He wants to take the complaints offline, so he can't read them anymore. There were a bunch of lawsuits that the Bureau was pursuing against payday lenders that was like totally scamming people and charging them like 300% interest. He dropped some of those lawsuits. He totally eliminated the Office for Students and Consumer Protection, um, which was one of the best, in my opinion, offices looking out for student loan borrowers. So that's just a few things he's done. So that's like the consumer space. And then if you look into like the more banky, more systemic risk, more like crisis kind of stuff, mm-hmm. we're also seeing rollbacks there. So we're seeing yeah. proposals to kind of undo Dodd-Frank. And then the third piece is like partially Trump, partially GOP, but also Democrats to blame. And the yeah. third piece is there was like this really big piece of legislation that was recently signed into law, which I'm happy to talk about but that kind of makes a future bailout more likely. So it's sort of like Congress is doing bad things, and then Trump is doing bad things in both the consumer space and the, like, financial systemic risk space. 
Yeah. So it's like all the bad things. <laughs> all the bad things. So the, the, the reason that tipped me off to do this particular conversation this week was that um, the Volcker rule, which is kind of your baby, um, yeah. is one of the things that's up on the chopping block. So can you tell our listeners what the Volcker rule is, first of all, and then what they're trying to do to it now? Right. So the Volcker rule was part of Dodd-Frank, which, again, is that 2010 law that they put together after the financial crisis. And it's just one piece of it. But the Volcker rule basically said if you are a bank that enjoys taxpayer backing, um, you cannot do risky, reckless gambling. Um, and it tried to basically say, fine, if you want to do risky, reckless banking, that's fine, but you don't get to enjoy government support. And, of course, no bank really exists without government support. Every like right. Banks are basically this intermediary between the government and us that they basically give money to through this thing called the discount window. It's like a pretty good racket. It's nice work if you can get it. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. the vocal rule not only just said you can't do this risky gambling, but it also kind of defined what that meant. So not only right. could you do what's called proprietary trading and just gamble on random securities, you also couldn't, like, take a huge investment in a hedge fund. You couldn't take a huge investment in a private equity fund, which are really risky and um, have a tendency to blow up. So yeah. the, the rule wasn't perfect. I and a bunch of other people in this group called Occupy the SEC wrote a really long, wonky comment letter to try to make it better. It got marginally better in some ways and marginally worse in other ways. But it was like a decent rule. Um, mm-hmm. And so now they're basically proposing a total redo. And I would say that the biggest thing they're trying to do is just exempt a bunch of institutions from it altogether if they're not, quote, unquote, big enough. But in my opinion, if you enjoy taxpayer backing, it doesn't really matter how big or how small you are, right? If you don't want the taxpayer support, then just don't take it. But, of course, nobody right. nobody does that. So they're trying to not only exempt a bunch of smaller firms, they're also trying to get rid of a bunch of the reporting, and long story short, just essentially defang it. But the good news, I would say, is this is a great pivot point to do what we did in the healthcare battle, which is, yes, to fight back, but also to ask for what we really want. And I would urge people to push their members of Congress to sign on to Elizabeth Warren's modernized Glass-Steagall which is going mm-hmm. back to the true separation of the casino banking and the boring banking and actually forcing firms to break themselves up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that we have some we have sort of a lot of policies like this under Obama that were kind of like a little piece of what we want and then a lot of you know compromises with right-wing policy ideas that you know, the right was never going to want to go along with anyway. Right. Yeah, it's sort of like you sort of compromise with yourself, and then when you sort of pre-compromise, it never gets better from there. (laughs) You're never like, oh, we did it wrong. Let's make it stronger now. It just sort of gets weaker over time. So if you don't start with, like, the big, bold idea, when it gets chipped away, it just sort of dissolves into nothing. So I want to backtrack a little bit because, like, on the campaign trail, Donald Trump loved to play fake populist and to, in fact, like, accuse everybody from Ted Cruz to Hillary Clinton to being in the pockets of Wall Street. And so, you know, is there, I guess, well, first of all, you know, I want to unpack that a little bit. But also, like, is there a space to use these rollbacks, various rollbacks that he is either directly or indirectly involved in to sort of, you know, play off some of his audience who maybe believe that against what he's actually doing. I mean, I 
I, we are certainly trying to do that at the organization that I work for. I think mm-hmm. the problem is his core base just likes him as a mm-hmm. person. And yeah. I think that they're sort of many of his voters, they're sort of animating forces like racial resentment. Um, I do think certainly we are trying to call out the hypocrisy, and we've pointed out many times that he said that hedge funds or private equity funds were getting away with murder, and then he yeah. gave them a big present in the tax right. bill and a bunch and of other places. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's that's a great that's a great <laughs> analogy. Um, uh, so, but uh, yes, and we are trying to do that. I guess I just worry that, that there's a certain chunk of his base, and unfortunately, I think yeah. it's a big chunk of it that just don't care mm-hmm. yeah that's true that's true um so that brings us to the people who say that they care about these things but then vote for um deregulating banks uh that would be however many dem- it was 17 in the first round right and then i don't remember how many it was when the thing was actually going through how many democrats voted for this bill that is more deregulation so there were 16 democrats in the senate and then um Senator, is it King, the independent from Maine? Oh, yeah, that guy. Um, uh, yeah, which is pretty surprising. He's usually, you know, I don't know, better on these issues. Uh-huh. But And then in the House, I think it was 33 Democrats uh-huh. who voted for this. Um, yeah. So, which is still high, but believe it or not, is actually like a lower percentage than the percentage in the Senate. So in a way, even though the like absolute number is higher, the House Democrats were like more progressive on this bad bill than the Senate Democrats. And this, the thing about the Senate Democrats is the the, the Senate Democrats really pushed this. I mean, yeah. Mark Warner yeah. of Virginia, this is something that he he said openly in interviews. He was like, "We've been pushing this for a long since Trump came into office. This has nothing to do with Trump." Um, yeah. So, and this is the kind of thing that would not have been able to pass in the Senate without Democratic support, unlike the right. House, where they could have passed it regardless. So, yeah. the passage of that bill, which I guess I should say what it does, the bill basically. Yeah, that's true. So there was a, a a bunch of rules for banks over fifty billion in assets. So those are enormous banks. Um, just a higher level of scrutiny, a higher level of monitoring, and this bill raises that extra monitoring. From banks over fifty billion to banks over two hundred and fifty billion, mm-hmm. and the banks in that sort of intermediate spot between fifty billion and two hundred fifty billion. First of all, two hundred and forty-nine billion is still half a trillion dollars, and if you ask right. me, that's still an enormous amount of money. Um, yeah. These are banks like Capital One and BB and T and Zions and I don't know. So, but the other thing is, if people remember the name Countrywide. That was uh-huh. a huge, huge player in the crisis. They were responsible for tons of subprime mortgages. They originated one out of five of every mortgage in the country, and they were like around $100 billion. So they are a bank squarely in that. Now, they don't exist anymore because Bank of America bought them up, but the point is banks of that size have been significant in crashes in the past yeah. and presumably will be significant in crashes in the future. And this really stodgy, boring, you know, I mean, I shouldn't say boring. They're very important. But this very sort of, like, objective government agency, the Government Accountability Office, was asked to evaluate the risks that this bill presented and did it present a larger risk of a future bailout, and their answer was yes. Yeah. Um, And the other thing that the bill did that's really offensive is, um, so after Dodd-Frank, they increased the amount of data that banks needed to report 
um, through something called the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. But basically, that data is used to catch racial discrimination in lending and discrimination right. in lending, period. And so they yeah. were already publishing some data, but they weren't giving, for example, credit scores. And sometimes yeah. you'll see things where a black American will have the same credit score as a white American and the same income, but they'll get the worst, you know, the shitty mortgage and the white American yeah. will get the good one. And they need yeah. that information to catch that. And so part right. of this bill also exempts basically four out of five banks in the country from doing that extra reporting. So it's basically mm -hmm. giving a green light to more discrimination in lending or at least making it really hard to catch it when it happens. And, again, yeah. I think that's the kind of thing that no Democrat – well, I mean, no one obviously should be voting for, but yeah. certainly, certainly right. no Democrat. Yeah. And they, they sort of argued that these were like community banks in order to try to right. pretend that this right. wasn't just a giveaway to Wall Street. Yeah, they absolutely did. And the crazy thing is, like, if you are $249 billion, again, that's like a quarter of a trillion. That's not a community bank. But the other thing is some of this stuff also impacted foreign banks that are definitely not community banks, right? Like, there mm -hmm. were there were little gimmies to Deutsche Bank and UBS, too, in this bill because, you know, Deutsche Bank and UBS are obviously bigger than $250 billion, but their U.S. Uh, sort of branch isn't. So mm -hmm. UBS and Deutsche Bank also get to benefit, at least on the U.S. side, um, from this bill. So it's just it's just nonsense. They just, in my opinion, a lot of folks just wanted to do a bipartisan thing, um, really? and they felt like this was the bipartisan thing that they wanted to do. And you know, it has the benefit of more campaign contributions and all that. But mm -hmm. um, I, I I could never find a coherent argument for why this legislation. Like, you know, even if I disagreed with it, which I did, like, I just, no right. one really articulated one. Everything yeah. I said was just not true, right? Oh, it's for community mm -hmm. banks. That's not true. Oh, you know, yeah. you know, small banks are getting squeezed. Also not true. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and it's, it's been, right. You mentioned that this is like going back to the nineties, um, when it was very much the bipartisan thing to do. Um, and we can, you know, talk on another, level about why the bipartisan thing to do is always give things to rich people. But mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, one of the things about Democrats having their hands on this, and again, this being a thing that couldn't have passed the Senate without some of these people's help, including, we should say, Tim Kaine's help, um, right. that should give the last progressives, people who don't want another financial crisis, which is, should be all of us. Um, some leverage here to say what the hell are you people doing? Yeah, and I and I should point out though that well, a I should say the name of the bill in case people haven't heard of it. So it's S two one five five. I forget what the actual title is, but we all called it the Bank Lobbyist Act. Um, <laughs> the other thing that was interesting is not a single one of the twenty twenty Democrat presidential contenders, mm -hmm. like. Not just the not just Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who were never going to vote for this anyway, right. but like the Klobuchar, uh, Chris Murphy, um, you know Kamala Harris. None of them were on this. Cory Booker. So I do think, right, exactly. And Cory Booker has definitely voted in the past um, with Wall Street. So mm -hmm. it was sort of interesting to see the way he he distinguished himself in this way. So it, it, I guess yeah. the, the optimist in me wants to point out that this does seem to be a defining issue if you want to be the top of the ticket, but there does mm -hmm. seem to be, like, permission to do this kind of stuff if, like, you're a quote-unquote purple state 
or red state Democrat. Although how you can justify Mark Warner and Tim Kaine voting for this, I don't know, because I'm pretty sure that Virginia seems to be a blue state right now, or at least like, yeah. you know, on the blue side of purple. But when, well, and again, I think I, I cannot imagine that like working class, you know, the, the sort of mythical Trump voter in, you know, West Virginia or, well, Joe Manchin aside, um, in you know, Arizona <laughs> or wherever is like chomping at the bit to give $50 billion institutions more leeway to do whatever they want. Like, I just well, I and actually, can't imagine not. that like, it's a popular issue, right? A- no, it's not. And we did a poll, like my organization did a poll right. about, or had a poll done about this. And and, and you're and you're right. And they're not. <laughs> and yeah. the, the polling on this was was bad, regardless of political party. Um, yeah. So it is, I think, politically stupid. I think what they were banking on is we're in this sort of media environment where there is just so much trash on fire all the time mm-hmm. that they were like, yeah. maybe people won't notice. But we did see a lot of op-eds in local papers in red states about this, and I do think yeah. that people, to the extent that they heard about it, were were not happy. So yeah. I don't think it was strategic, I, I but, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. They They seem to think it was. Yeah, that kind of anticipated my next question, which was going to be, like, we are in an environment where there is something on fire all the time, um, where it's like a giant game of whack-a-mole. And some of this stuff can sound really wonky. And so, you know, when they sort of make the excuse, like, oh, we're just trying to make things easier for community banks, you know, how do you get, I guess, how do we do a better job of breaking the the wonky-sounding stuff into mm-hmm. people's consciousness when we're, you know, when it can get drowned out by, you know, things that people should be freaking out about, like separating immigrant families at the border um, mm-hmm. or just, you know, Trump's latest tweet and where is Melania? Well, I don't know why we I can't mean, wear Melania. I, I, I do. That's another story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the way we tried to do that is to just talk about, like, banks are have record profits right now and they just yeah. got a huge gift from the tax cuts and this is not where we should be spending our time and energy. There are people that are that are suffering and and the banks are not one of them. Um but I think I don't have a good answer to that question. It's sort of something we struggle with every day is how to break through and sometimes sometimes we break through and sometimes we don't. I mean honestly sometimes the way we break through a former colleague of mine is the Monopoly Man. If people have heard of of them, they they dressed up as Monopoly Man and sat yep. in, in a couple congressional hearings and made really hilarious faces and stayed in character for like four hours straight. Um, Amanda yeah. Werner is their name, but so we we were able to break through that way. Yeah. <laughs> you can't always go viral, so I don't know if if, yeah. if people have suggestions, I'm all for it. But we we just basically yeah. try to say, look, these folks are, are rolling in money; they're totally profitable. Um, why are we spending our energy here? And that that was the argument we made. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose it's not always the easiest thing to be like, guys, do you really want another 2008? <laughs> well, yeah, we did try to say that too. Um, but I think, you know, it's hard to be the Cassandra all the time. And, mm-hmm. and I think the Republicans, mm-hmm. one of the Republicans honestly said in the debate about this in the House, they were like, oh, we've moved on from that. We've moved on from <laughs> the long shadow of 2008. Uh huh. You just can't make it up. Some of this stuff. Tell me another one with the Brooklyn real estate yeah. crisis. Um, yeah. Yeah, but it is interesting how like we haven't moved on from 2008. Everything, right. every political issue that is live, not only in the U.S. but across the world, is clearly the shadow of 2008. And so it is striking to me sometimes how little politicians still seem to get that. 
Well, and I think I, that's always the problem, right? Because they're wealthy for the most part, most yeah. of them. I mean, I don't want to get, like, too crazy <laughs> political on this because, like, I don't know, if I put aside my, my day job hat for a second and just speak in a yeah. personal capacity, like, you know, most of these politicians are incredibly wealthy, and so they're just totally out of touch, and they don't know any – there was a hearing I remember um, either before the financial crisis or right after, and I unfortunately can't remember who asked this question, but someone was like, how many of you know anyone who has been foreclosed on or been foreclosed on yourself? Mm-hmm. And none of the politicians were able to raise their hand because yeah. they just live in this bubble. And that's why I think, like, I'm intrigued, for example, I don't know if you are going to cover this or have covered this, but um, mm-hmm. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez running in New York's 14th yeah. against, like, them mm-hmm. machine Joe Crowley. Like, she was actually someone who was really vocal against this bill I was just talking about, this bank lobbyist yeah. act. Um, and, you know, she's someone who at least, I mean, I don't know her financials, but I, it says that she's sort of, like, of the community and, like, you know, of mm-hmm. the middle class, and I think that, like, makes a huge difference in terms of, like, what your reality is, right? Of course politicians think that we are past the long shadow of 2008 because they're millionaires for the most part. Um, They don't, like, and it makes me think of Tim Geithner, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but Tim (laughs) Geithner wrote this this book about his life and whatever, and I, like an idiot, read it. But it was just striking to me that, like, the whole book is just, like, bubble, bubble, bubble. He's living in a bubble. And then he goes to Jacksonville, Wyoming, fly fishing he like ditches some economic conference he's supposed to be at to go fly fishing and his fly fishing guide is the first person in the whole book who's like you know what there's really like kind of a problem going on right now and people are really struggling to get by and tim geithner's like what yeah (laughs) and like this is the guy who was supposed to like have his pulse on the economy yeah so that's my rant yeah, you know it is it is really telling when you when you think about that, right? That this is still and it's shaped by our political system which requires so much money as an outlay just to get involved that you know you guarantee that people have no clue what other people are dealing with. Um I mean, anyway, to their credit, some <laughs> yeah. of them do try to like actually meet with their constituents and like get a sense of yeah. like what it is actually like in their district, but I just think that that that's rarer than it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how can people um, keep up with your work and keep up with sort of what's going on with the, you know, deregulated palooza here so that they can, <laughs> you know, respond to these things when they're happening? Yes. So um, so my day job, I work at Americans for Financial Reform. Our website is um, our, like, O-U-R, like you and me, ourfinancialsecurity.org, and kind of at the top right, there's, like, a button, join our mailing list, and we send out alerts pretty much every week, either with, like, a request to email your senator or your house member um, or to call them, but usually it's email, and we, like, pre-write the email for you and everything, and it's really easy. So that's 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 a great way if you do want to keep up with, like, every bill and every piece of deregulation, we will definitely make sure to do that. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Alexis Goldstein, and I talk about this on my podcast, Humorless Queers, too, but we try to, like, make it, you know, be like, and here's how you can stop this, or here's how you can complain about this. It's Humorless is meant to be a joke. <laughs> we do yeah. try to make it funny. So I don't want to disagree with anyone. You are quite funny about stuff that is not often funny. So I will yeah. add that. Interviews for Resistance is a project of Sarah Jaffe with assistance from Laura Fayabois and support from the Nation Institute. You can find more information at necessarytrouble.org. Thanks for listening.